So the Bible, most of you know, has two parts. The first part is the Old Testament, which goes from creation to the history of Israel. Second part is the New Testament, which covers Jesus and the early church. So here's a question. Why should we New Testament followers of Jesus read the Old Testament? I mean, wasn't the Old Testament just written for the people of Israel? Why should we read it? And the answer is no, it was not written just for Old Testament Israel. Look at what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4. Very important scripture. He says, For whatever was written in former days, and that's a reference to the Old Testament, that's the former days from when Paul was living, whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. New Testament followers of Jesus, our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we, New Testament followers of Jesus, might have hope. So Paul is saying that the Old Testament was not written just for Old Testament Israel. It was also written for us, to give us endurance. Anybody need endurance this morning? To give us encouragement. Anybody want some encouragement imparted? To give us hope through the scriptures. Anybody want a fresh outpouring of hope? This is for us. The Old Testament is God's gift to us. And that's one of the reasons we are preaching through the book of Exodus. Now, let me give you some background, some backdrop to today's passage. God had promised the people of Israel that he would make them into a great nation, that he would take them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that through them he would bring the Messiah into the world whose death would pay for the sins of everyone who will trust him from every nation, tongue, and tribe so we can be reconciled to God and have the joy of knowing him now and forever. That was God's promise. The problem, though, is that at the beginning of Exodus, Israel's a small little group of people enslaved in Egypt, under forced labor in Egypt. So the big question at the beginning of Exodus is, Will God fulfill his promises? And what's the answer? Will God fulfill his promises, Grace Church? Uh, yeah, we can do a bit better than that, but I, I, I know it's, it's early. Yes, God always is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he does that here. He raises up Moses and Aaron. He sends them to Pharaoh to say, let, God says, let my people go. And God told Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will say no. And Pharaoh did say no. And so Moses and Aaron brought these horrible plagues upon Egypt. Nile River turning into blood. The land filled with frogs, boils upon people and animals. And Pharaoh just kept saying no, 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 no. And so God said, now I'm going to come upon Egypt and I'm going to take the lives of all the firstborn animals and the firstborn sons in Egypt. But before God did that, he told Israel, every household, take an unblemished lamb and kill it and take its blood and paint the doorposts of your doors. 
And so everybody in Israel did that. And then they were to eat the lamb together, dressed, ready to leave, because they needed to be ready to depart at a moment's notice. And then when God comes upon Egypt and he sees the blood on any house doorposts, he passes over that house and does not take the life of the firstborn. But when he sees houses with no blood on the doorpost, he takes the lives of the firstborn animals' sons in that household. Horrible tragedy. Remember, God never harms, kills innocent people. So it was a horrible tragedy. And as a result, Pharaoh did let Israel go. And so God calls Israel to celebrate the Passover meal every year as a way of both remembering God's mercy in freeing them from slavery, from Egypt, and we're going to see especially today that the Passover is pointing ahead to what the Messiah would do, to Jesus, the Passover lamb. Because everyone who trusts in Jesus is connected to him. If you're trusting Jesus today as your Savior and as your Lord and as your all-satisfying treasure, then you are connected to him and his blood protects you from the wrath of God which you rightly deserve. So the Passover points back to their delivery from their freedom from Egypt and points ahead to the Passover lamb, the Messiah, Jesus. Now, with that background in mind, let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 43. Today's passage breaks down into four different parts, and each part answers a different question. The first question that's answered, verses 43 to 51, is who gets to receive, who gets to enjoy the Passover meal? Start with verse 43. God is talking about their future Passover celebrations, and look at what he says in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Now stop there. It sounds clear. That means that that no Gentile, no non-Israelite will be eating of the Passover. But we see an exception in verse 44. Next verse. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Okay, so now we see that Passover can be received, enjoyed by slaves who are circumcised. Now, circumcision was intended by God to be a sign that somebody wanted to join God's people in trusting God and what he would do through the future Messiah. And so, men were circumcised as representatives of their household. So if there's a slave who says, we want to join God's people in trusting God and what he will do through the Messiah, then he would be circumcised. It's a picture. He's representing his whole family. So they all could enjoy the annual Passover meal together. So what about though the people at the in verse 45, what about the foreigners or the hired workers? What about them? Well, hold that thought for a moment. Verse 46 tells us how special this Passover meal is. Verse 46, it, this Passover meal, shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. It's all inside the one house. And you shall not break any of its bones. It's a puzzling thing. 
You're going to eat lamb but not break any of its bones. What's that about? What that's about is that that is pointing ahead towards the Messiah. And we know that because of what we read in John's gospel. Look at John chapter 19, verses 33 to 36, which is describing the crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross. John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The Roman soldiers, the crucifixion, time for this to be over, and they would usually just go ahead and, and, and if somebody wasn't already dead, they would break their legs because then they could no longer breathe and they would suffocate and die, but they could see Jesus was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So he was clearly dead. Verse 35, he who saw it, John is talking about himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. And then verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now what scripture was fulfilled that not one of his bones will be broken? It's the verse we just read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Now with that in mind, read verse 46 again from that perspective. It shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. This isn't just some casual meal. Hey, I'm going to go eat outside, mom and dad, okay, dropping some of the lamb here. There. No, 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 no. This is very holy, reverent, special. Don't take any of the flesh outside the house and don't break any of its bones. And the Israelite people knew that this was saying this Passover lamb by whom you're going to be protected from God's wrath because they've seen the focus on the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming all the way through the book of Genesis. This is pointing ahead to the Messiah lamb, Passover lamb. So the eating of the lamb would have been done with reverence, with worship, and with trust in what God is going to do through the Messiah. It's amazing. Okay, but now what about the foreigner and the hired workers? Could they be part of this communion Communion, Passover celebration. Passover was a picture of communion, yes. Keep reading verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it if a stranger shall sojourn with you. Now, who's a stranger? A stranger is any foreigner. If a, if a foreigner shall sojourn with you, shall pass through, shall, shall be there in your land, and would keep the Passover to the Lord. So here's a foreigner including a hired worker who wants to enjoy the Passover meal, wants to celebrate the Passover. Let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Okay, so it's not just circumcised slaves who can enjoy the Passover. Any foreigner who wants to become part of God's people in trusting God and what he would do through the Messiah and would, for the males to show that through circumcision, anyone in that position would be welcomed to celebrate the Passover meal with the people of Israel. You see that? Now, what I love about this, there's lots we could apply to this. Oh, let me keep going though first before I apply it. Verse 49, there shall be one law 
for the native, the Israelite, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, same law applies to everyone, Israelite, non-Israelite. If you're circumcised, picturing that you are trusting God and what he will do through the Messiah, you are welcome to partake of the Passover meal. Then verse 50, all the people of Israel did, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Okay, so we're asking the question, who gets to enjoy the Passover meal? Who gets to come at this time of holy, reverent worship? The Passover lamb's going to protect us from God's wrath, and we're looking ahead toward the Messiah. Who gets to do that? And the answer is anyone of any nationality who is trusting God and his promised Messiah and for the men has shown that through circumcision. So it's wide open to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, every nationality, every skin color, every ethnicity. And I just want to remind us once again that God loves every skin color. God loves every race. God loves every ethnicity. And I want to remind us of that because we we do live in a city where it's not often that people of different skin colors are friends together. There's lots of, of separation in, in this city. But I want to tell you that the church should not look like that. That's not how the church is. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. So here's how it should work. Maybe there's a, a, a man from Ethiopia, okay, who meets a man from Ecuador, okay, different nationalities here. Okay, different language backgrounds, different cultures, and there can be an awkwardness there, right? That's just, that's just how it is between races and ethnicities. But see, here's how it works. Jesus in this man from Ethiopia, and Jesus indwelling this man from Guatemala, Ecuador, whatever, or I said, whatever country, that'll be like a magnet drawing them together, overcoming that awkwardness and that distance. Their love for Jesus will cause them to love each other, and that'll be like a magnet drawing them together, and then what'll be very clear is that what draws them together isn't their ethnicity or their race or their background or that they both you know, know about the same restaurants in their home countries, it's Jesus. And that's what we want to display as a church. So just to apply this, that God loves every skin color, every ethnicity, is church, let's keep putting effort into pressing into be friends with people from other nationalities and ethnicities. I know it's, it's awkward, right? Because um, different backgrounds, there's cultural differences, right? It's always easier to gravitate towards people from our own home countries, right? Let's just admit it, it's easier. But oh, for your joy, for our joy, for Jesus' glory, let's press into building friendships, with those of other races, ethnicities, skin colors, because that will be both for our joy and for Jesus' glory. People from Abu Dhabi seeing friends like that, connected like that, affectionate, loving friendships, that will strike them. There is something different going on here. Let's give glory to Jesus Christ in that way. So the first question we are asking is, who gets to receive the Passover meal? And the answer is, anyone of any nationality who's trusting God and his promised Messiah and who's showing that if they're a male through circumcision? That's the first question. Now, second question. What does the unleavened bread show? 
Lots of focus on unleavened bread in this passage and in the Passover meal. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, keep that in mind. Uh, We're going to come back to that, but the next section then focuses on unleavened bread. Notice how often it's mentioned. Verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. In other words, this not eating leavened bread for these seven days is so dramatic. It's like, why are we eating leavened bread? It's going to be like like you wrote some sign on your hand or like you put something right in the middle of your forehead. It's going to be a super clear reminder of this. With the strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So starting on the day of the Passover meal for seven days, Israel would eat only unleavened bread. Now, there's two reasons that they did this. One reason they did this was so that the children would think, why, why no leavened bread? And then the fathers, the parents would explain to them, let's explain to you, we were slaves in Egypt and God had us take a Passover lamb and paint our doors and then God came and killed all the firstborn and and Pharaoh let us go, but we had to eat quickly. We had no time to have our dough get leavened, so we ate unleavened bread. And this is to remind us of what God did with a strong, mighty hand. He has delivered us from slavery in Egypt and brought us to this land flowing with milk and honey. That's one reason they did this. But there's another reason. Most of the time in the Bible, leaven is a symbol for sin. Leaven, most, not all the time, most of the time it's a symbol for sin. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Look at how Paul talks about leaven here. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. See how he's connecting leaven here with sin, like malice and evil? So not with leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he connects no leaven, unleavened, with holiness, righteousness, sincerity, and truth. So Paul here is just saying, get get sin cleaned out. Then he uses the analogy of leaven. No leaven. Leaven is a symbol of sin. Do you see that in this passage? Leaven is a symbol for sin here. 
Okay, so what's the point then? Here's what I think. You can weigh this and do some more study and see if this makes sense to you. The Passover meal results in seven days of no leaven. Okay, so first you got the Passover meal, then you got seven days of, of no leaven, and I think what God wants to teach us through this is this. Faith in Jesus, the Passover lamb, conquers sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, conquers sin. That's how you conquer sin. When you put your trust in Jesus, the result is leaven is gone. And we need to do that again and again and again and again. But I think that's the picture that's being portrayed here. So let me ask you this question. What do you do when you find sin in your heart, like envy towards someone or bitterness towards a situation? What do you do when there's greed in your heart or lust in your heart or unforgiveness towards someone? What do you do? Don't try to overcome sin just by your own willpower. It's just so easy to do that, just to try to do that. I'll I'll try it. It just doesn't work. All through the Bible, we're told, no, no, no. Sin is overcome by looking to Jesus Christ and trusting him, the Passover lamb. So take some time to come before the Lord and say, help me, I'm feeling greedy. I'm bitter towards this person. Lord, forgive me, help me. And then you set your heart on his promises, who he promises to be to you. And you say, help me to trust these promises. Help me to see you more clearly. And as you do that, sin's power will be broken, conquered overcome, not by your willpower, but by trusting Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus, the Passover lamb, conquers sin. The third question answered in this passage, what does the consecration of the firstborn teach us? Start with verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, As he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. They'll belong to him. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You wouldn't sacrifice it because donkeys are unclean, so you'd, you'd kill it. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Why are we giving to the Lord the firstborn? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. That is something right here in your hand. You'll never not see it right in your forehead. Nobody can miss it. You'll never, 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 ever forget that with a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so God wanted Israel, when they were in the promised land, to consecrate every firstborn animal or son to the Lord. With animals, that meant they would offer them as a sacrifice 
Or if they wanted to keep it as a work animal, they could redeem it with a lamb. And then with sons, we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers that that was with five shekels of silver is how they redeemed their sons. Okay, what's the point? Why do this? What's the meaning of it? Let me explain it like this. God wants Israel to understand you were slaves. Pharaoh owned you. Under, remember, remember what that was like. You were slaves owned by Pharaoh. I, God, delivered you with a strong, mighty hand. So now you belong to me, God says. You belonged to Pharaoh. I've delivered you. Now you belong to me. And as a regular reminder of that, every firstborn, because the firstborn symbolizes all the others that will be born, all the other animals that will be born, all the other children that will be born, the firstborn symbolizes all the other children. I want you regularly to consecrate your firstborn to me to remind you that you and everything that you are and have is mine. You belong to me. So think of how this regular consecration of the firstborn, a sacrifice, redeeming with the lamb, five shekels of silver, me, my son, this lamb, this donkey, everything I am, everything I have, every, everything that we belong completely to God. The regular rhythm of offering that to the Lord would remind you again and again, you belong to God. Now, if the idea of belonging to God troubles you, if that kind of sounds harsh, maybe, or a little frightening, let me remind you about who God is. He did not spare his own son. He delivered his son up for you. He has given his son to free you, to save you, to bring you into the all-satisfying joy of knowing him, to be pursuing you, like Pastor Ben read from Psalm 23 this morning, to be pursuing you with loving kindness and mercy all the days of your life. There is nothing better than being owned by God, completely owned by God. And so the rhythm of consecrating your firstborn would remind you, Oh, with a strong hand, God brought us out of Egypt. I am so glad I belong to him. Now, how does this apply to us? It's obvious, isn't it? We were slaves of sin, owned by sin, on our way to hell, and God redeemed us with a mighty hand, with a mighty Savior through the beautiful, glorious cross. He owns us. He owns it. So I would encourage you on a regular basis in your prayer life just to pray over parts of your life and say, Lord, my family belongs to you. My job belongs to you. My money, it all belongs to you. My future, it belongs to you. And pray that. And if you struggle some, and you will in different areas, if you're honest, right? We do. Say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to see more clearly who you are. Help me to see more clearly your heart. Nothing else satisfies me like you. I can trust you completely. I want to surrender everything to you. Surrender everything to the Lord. That's what God had Israel do. We belong to God. Fourth question. What does Israel's departure teach us about God? Three answers. So encouraging. First, 
God is flawlessly wise. Look at verses 17 through 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Equipped for battle probably means they must have received some weaponry from Egypt. Okay, so they were equipped for battle. But why didn't God take them directly to the promised land? It's because that road would take them through the Philistine area, which was very militarized and lots of conflicts that are going on. And Israel has been slaves for hundreds of years. They are in no shape to do any battle. They'll be running back to Egypt as fast as they can. And so God does something that's perfectly wise. He sends them to the Red Sea. How's that perfectly wise? Don't you remember what happened there? They ended up being caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's galloping armies. Remember that story? Okay. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. Read it. It's amazing. And it shows that God is flawlessly, perfectly wise. Here's the point. Some of you are being led in a direction. You're thinking, this makes no sense, God. This, why, why are you doing this? I don't like this. This is not my plan. I don't, it makes no sense to me at all. Right? Anybody? Just We do this often. Trust him. Trust him. Why is he taking you to the Red Sea? He has something amazing planned for you, and you will thank him for it when you see it. So when you think God is doing something unwise, think again. He is flawlessly wise. Trust him. Trust him. Second truth, God is perfectly faithful. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear that that they would take his bones back to the promised land when God delivered them. And Joseph said, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So hundreds of years before, Joseph had promised, you're going to be, I mean, they're in Israel at that time, hundreds of years before, Joseph said, God's going to visit us here. He's going to take you to the promised land. And when he takes you, take my bones with you. I want to have my bones be buried there. And so what we see here is that it's happening just as God promised through Joseph. God did visit the people of Israel, did deliver them from their slavery, did take them back to the promised land. Which shows, again, this is all through the Bible, but here again, God is perfectly faithful to his promises. So Grace Church, let me ask you, what promises are you doubting this morning? What promise are you doubting this morning? None of us this morning here is perfectly trusting God in everything. So which one are you doubting? Are you doubting that God will really work that situation for good? Are you doubting that God really will satisfy you more than sin? That's what he's promised. Are you doubting that God really can forgive you completely through Jesus? What promise are you doubting? Let this remind you, God is perfectly faithful to his promises. Third truth I love this. God is constantly present. Verses 20 to 22. 
And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now think of how comforting this would have been for the people of Israel when they are wandering around in the middle of the desert. Okay, I know we're wandering, but look, there's the pillar of cloud. Okay, God's, we're, still, we're still here in God's presence. He's leading us. There's the pillar of fire. Okay, that would have been comforting. That would have been encouraging. Now, we don't have a pillar of fire or cloud with us today. But we have God just as real, maybe even more real, in the fact that the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell inside of you. You have God, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling in you, the precious Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide you if you depend upon him and rely on him and ask him to guide you. He will comfort you when you're heartbroken over something. He will open up God's word to you. God, this just looks like words. Help me, show me, who are you? He will meet you at that time and open up God's word to you. He will convict you of sin. Oh, that's a precious gift. We should love the fact that God, by the Holy Spirit, convicts us of sin. I want to be convicted of every sin possible before glory, right? I want to know them now so I can deal with them now. Thank him for that precious ministry. He will strengthen you when you're feeling weak, when you're weary, either from the labor of work or from some emotional burdens that have been upon you. He will strengthen you. He will show you Jesus' glory, fill your heart, satisfy you, refresh you, bless you, and meet you. God is constantly present to all who trust Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So be comforted. Be strengthened, be led by the Spirit. He is constantly present. So do you see how this passage has given us instruction for New Testament believers? So let's take this to heart. Let's stand. I want to pray over us. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts right now, Lord, reaching out to people from other nationalities, other backgrounds. Lord, stir us in that area. The reality that we conquer sin by faith in Jesus Christ. That everything that we are and have belongs to you, God. We've been bought with a price. We praise you for that, Lord, that you are flawlessly wise, that you are perfectly faithful, that you are constantly present. Lord, I pray that you would touch each of us with exactly what we need right now, And Lord, for anyone here who's not yet trusting Christ, Lord, that they would be so drawn to you, glorious God, who's done all of this for us through the cross of Jesus Christ, that they right now would turn from their sin, put their trust in you, and receive all that you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.